Morrison lies about his electric vehicle lies. Can-do capitalism leaves Australia last on climate. The good news is refugees leading reforestation. And QAnon and On is coming out next week. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and joining me is my co-host from the sunny harbour city of Sydney, is the great, the glorious, the internationally published and renowned author of QAnon and On, <laughs> Van Batum. How are you, Van? Oh, I'm all right. I have a bag of peas, frozen peas on my knee. Right. I've done my knee. Oh, so right. this, yes. Did you did you think I meant a different no, kind no, of no, pee? No, no, no. It was just it was a, an unexpected uh, foray into the contents of your, the, your freezer. Um, but yeah, right. Your yeah, knee. we only have them. We only have them for injuries, frozen peas. Yeah, but they're remarkably good. Yeah. I mean, they're they're what you want. But yes, I twisted my knee on the stairs. Ouch. Yeah. So if I sound a little sharp today, everyone, it's not just because we are eight miserable years into coalition government. It's also because I have a bag of frozen peas on my leg. Look, we've all been there nearly two decades of playing the world game. I think I've had frozen peas on just about every part of my body, including some which are probably best left unmentioned. Benjamin, most of the time I live with you and I thought we just called that Saturday night. (laughs) There you go, listeners, a bit of an insight into the life of Ben and Van. You'll get more of an insight into that later on because Van's book, QAnon and On, is coming out next week. and We're going to talk about it towards the end of the show, but it's very, very exciting. Very exciting. You're reading it, aren't you? I am. I am. My mum's reading it too. She's really into it. Oh, well, between you and your mum and my cousin, I reckon that's it. Oh, that's all I need. Just about, but that just being about. said, you should all buy it, but we'll talk about it in a bit. <laughs> I was going to say, we might need to sell a few more copies to pay for the print run. <laughs> 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 oh, folks, look, we're, we, are, we are having a giggle today, but, you know, part of it is because of the just absurd nature of some of the stories we're going to talk about. Man, you mentioned we are eight years into coalition government. I think Elbo said today, uh, you know, the coalition's been in power for almost a decade. They're asking to be put in power for at least the start of another one and they're still spinning the same nonsense uh, and backflipping and reflipping. And, of course, this week, you know, Morrison's caravan of untruths managed to make its way to what most people would have thought were relatively safe Liberal seats uh, to lie about his lies on electric vehicles. It's quite a remarkable, quite a remarkable uh, flip-flop, backflip, turnaround. The Australians calling it the road to Damascus, which I thought was a, a remarkably generous biblical reference for a man who has effectively lied about lies he told before. Oh, it is. It, I can't. I just can't. I, I know I, I do apologise, everybody, because this is a news commentary show and the news is that Scott Morrison has announced an electric vehicle policy. He's the Prime Minister who gaslights the nation. So last week we talked about the fact that he had lied 
to the president of France. He had lied to Emmanuel Macron, that famous line from Macron asking, do you think Scott Morrison lied to you? And he went, I don't think, I know. By the way, somebody is selling T-shirts online that say this, like (laughs) these Andy Morrison T-shirts. Kerry Sackville, who's a wonderful writer who you should all follow on Twitter, she was modelling one the other day and didn't she have the smile on her face? Um, in the in the photograph, they I just and you know of course the Morrison crew came out the Morrison apologists the Morrison I'm trying to make a portmanteau out of it and I just I nah, can't nah. you know did I mention the knee injury and um, and Morrison insists oh this is just outrageous and there was that sort of element where the the you know Morrison types the Liberals the Nationals the Coalition the LNP they've got so many diffusion brands they're just the same thing people were insisting that this was all some kind of like devious French plot. Like, oh, well, you can't really trust the French. And, of course, then the President of the United States, Joe Biden, a man who was old enough to not have to lie about anything, was like, wait a second, that's not what you told Wait, and came out and said that Morrison had also lied to the Americans. These are fairly important allies of ours, France yeah. and America. So let's, like, let's, let's, let's focus on this week's lies because, I mean, um, there was polling this week that came out that actually said that as a result of his bumbling ineptitude and lies on the international stage, he's managed to push the coalition below Labor on who do you trust most to manage Australia's international relations. And I have to say, in all my time involved in politics, it it's not very often that Labor is considered to be better at managing our international relations, even though I would say on the on the whole we are. This week's lie is... Well, it was Bob Hawke who helped end apartheid in South Africa. So, I, I mean, and, it's all about values. If you wanted APEC apartheid in... Yeah, created APEC. Yeah. So, oh, and, of course, wasn't it, uh, wasn't it an Australian Labor government that helped, like, draft the Charter of the UN. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and it was Australian, Australian Labor government that sponsored the International Convention on Refugees. So, yes. Just a few. So, Van, the, the point I'm trying to get to is where we are this week. I know I know there are so many lies after eight years of, of coalition government. It's hard to it's hard to, uh, to, to keep up. But so this week it was the future fuels and vehicles strategy, $178 million, uh, which is really for infrastructure uh, around charging stations and hydrogen stations. And this will supposedly help Australia transition to 30% of vehicles being electric by 2030. Now, the hypocrisy, and most people listening to this show already know, the hypocrisy here is, of course, Morrison said that Labor's policy, which was about infrastructure investments, as well as some tax breaks to reduce the price of electric vehicles. Uh, Morrison said that would end the weekend and force people to buy electric cars, none of which is true. It wasn't true then. It isn't true now. It would have been a non-binding target of 50% electric vehicles by 2030 as opposed to Morrison's 30%. You know, it's really a question of degrees. But... He has defended this. I never said that. It literally has said, I never said that. People are running the clips of him saying it again and again and again. You know, it is just bizarre. It's blatant. Yeah. It's, 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 it's actually, it's disturbing because it's the sincerity with which he lies 
Like for him to stand in front of the nation, a nation which has invented sound and audio recording and has the internet <laughs> to disseminate those things very quickly. It is just amazing that he thinks he can say, I never said that. Like an ad is already out that makes it very clear that he did say that. I mean, I remember, you remember, I wrote a column about it yeah. at the time during the last federal election campaign that Shorten had come out with his excellent electric vehicle policy that was part, by the way, of a suite of policies that Labor put before the electorate last election, including the creation of a local battery-making industry, all of these transition schemes, working with stakeholders from unions and communities in order to bring the community with us into like the low-carbon economy, all this stuff that Labor had done, hundreds of pages of it in the policy document. And Morrison, like, stood in front of the nation and just went, oh, yeah, you know, Bill Shorten wants everyone to drive an electric car as if this was some kind of plot to emasculate the country. And he gave this unbelievable speech about how Shorten was trying to destroy the weekend and that Australians preferred cars with a bit of grunt. That was the comment. And it was just so outrageous and blatant and weird. You know, let's, like let's get into some of the detail on this too, right? Because I think I think it's important people really understand the the what this really means. Vehicle emissions are twenty percent of our total emissions. Morrison's plan plan, if I can call it that, will reduce emissions by two percent over the course of fourteen years. That's barely a drop in the ocean. He's com- making the comparison. But with his his strategy on electric vehicles to rooftop solar, of course, rooftop solar has had federal and state financial incentives for more than a decade, and now three million people have rooftop solar. It, it, this this kind of concept that everyone will have to drive an electric vehicle, well, that's not true. Even in countries where they're planning to phase out combustion engines, it's a planned phase out. You know, you've got. You've got countries as diverse as China and the UK, you know, Denmark and South Korea, France, the Netherlands. There are 12 US states. Uh, Cabo Verde, which I have to admit I, is not a country I'm familiar with, but these are all countries planning to phase out combustion engines entirely. Morrison, Morrison's just so far behind, such a laggard. Even the New South Wales treasurer, who's a liberal, who's a liberal, has said Morrison could be doing more. And- yeah, but he's a liberal who doesn't want to die in a climate fire, and that's kind of amazing. Like those people are rarer than you think. Oh my god! <laughs> but it's it's so it's phenomenal. Like there, there is such a coalition of. You know, environment groups. The Australian Automotive Association says that the policy doesn't do enough. Um, That's my favourite. Is the Australian <laughs> Automotive Association because I've got a feeling they love cars and that they like a bit of grunt. Yeah, you know. Yeah, well, you know, and a bit of grunt. Ah, oh. even you know what I find so funny about this. Like, I'm sure most people know my opinions of Elon Musk are not high or in any way laudatory. In fact, the term that I most use to describe Elon Musk is Bond villain and have said so in the pages of The Guardian numerous times. I think the cult of worshipping billionaires is special or good when they are really just pathologically greedy is very, very bad. Indeed. Yes. But certainly I can tell you this from friends who have driven Teslas 
They are, by all accounts, extraordinary cars to drive. They are an enviable car to drive. I, one of my dearest friends in the world is Peter Anderson, who is a is a car writer in Australia, a wonderful human being who really knows his cars. And I remember the first time he had driven a Tesla and he was just like, he was like a child who'd received a pony for Christmas, <laughs> I think is probably the best way of describing it. And the idea that these were in any way inferior vehicles that were beneath the contempt of the average Australian is just insane and not based on evidence. Well, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it- it really runs the risk of denying Australians better vehicles already. And again, the New South Wales Treasurer made this point. Australia has some of the worst fuel standards in the world, worse than China and India. And in 2016, the, 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 the coalition government was given a report that said under every scenario, fixing fuel standards would be a benefit and the benefits would outweigh the costs and they've rejected that. So all around the world, you've got car manufacturers, everyone from Mercedes to to new startups in China to Tesla to Ford making electric vehicles and hydrogen-based vehicles and, you know, making them with grunt. There's plenty of grunt in there. These are fast, sleek machines Built by the best engineering minds in the automotive world. Some of whom. Because that's where the money and the research is going. Some of whom may or may not be Bond villains. And at the same time, you've got Australia going, no, 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 that's fine. Just dump your garbage vehicles here that you can't sell anywhere else because they're so badly constructed and their fuel efficiency is so bad and their emissions are so bad, but we'll take them. Like it's such a, you know, Australians deserve better than that. We deserve we, – we used to make some of the best vehicles in the world in this country and now we're accepting the garbage that China and India won't even put on the roads. Like it's such a such a poor piece of leadership, you know, and the lie to say, oh, I was never against electric vehicles. Everything he does is against electric vehicles. Again, just to use the New South Wales example. They are investing five times as much to incentivize fleet buyers to take up electric vehicles. They're they're investing $595 million. This came out today. Half of all the vehicles in New South Wales are fleet vehicles. The incentive means that there'll be a huge influx of secondhand electric vehicles in three, five years' time. You know, it's it's uh, it's a real way of getting electric vehicles on the road and making it attractive for business and attractive for the second-hand market as well. And Morrison seems to think he's just going to build, you know, co-invest with business in building electric charging stations. We've got almost no electric vehicles here. It's like less than 1% of new car sales. You've got to do something to get the vehicles on the road, mate. And people want them. This is the thing. People actually want electric cars. You know, like because they they are they are better than than petrol cars, and I mean this is what is so frustrating that we have a government that is so absolutely it's stubbornly wedded to not doing anything meaningful about climate change, like as if making any kind of you know c- concrete forward thinking decisions would cause their entire reality to collapse. 
I just, it's so frustrating. I just want, I want to live in the future. Like I want to live I want to live in the rest of in in where the rest of the world is going. You know, it's really it's really interesting watching the comparison between Boris Johnson, another human being I despise for every legitimate political reason, and Boris Johnson is quite adamant about that we live in a climate emergency and was pressuring Morrison to do more, like, you know, in their brotherhood of Tory scumbags at, at the the COP26 in, um, was it 26? I don't yeah, even it know. It's such a blur. Yeah, yeah. In Glasgow was like, this is urgent. Like, this is not... This is not a leftist plot. If let me tell you, if Boris Johnson says it's a climate emergency, like it is not a leftist plot. Like that is what we know. That is quite concrete evidence that crazy communists are not making this up to turn you into a cultural Marxist. That's not what's happening. Well, it's, it, and in Britain, no, I just I just yeah. wanted to to mention this. The level of concern in Britain about what's going on. So they're having these unprecedented storms. They're having problems with floods, like it, and their national wealth. So so much individual wealth in Britain is tied up in tapestries and antiques yeah. and paintings and valuable bits of furniture. I think I've spoken on this product program before about the mold men. Yeah, yeah, the mold which men, which is terribly have, gendered. Have. But these guys who go around assessing your castle, where all your wealth is tied up, which you have loans against, and and what else? for the threat of mould to your artefacts and how that might depreciate their value. Um, I saw an ad the other day because I get the I, because I never take myself off mailing lists, which is a you know quite psychologically frustrating habit I must do something about. I still get all of the ads from from the Guardian um, from Guardian Jobs in the UK. It's like yeah. a country I have not lived in for uh, ten years now, but you know just to see what's going on. And there are local councils who are employing climate emergency officers. Wow. Like these are these are jobs for people looking at compliance and mitigation and strategies around how Britain is going to deal with climate change and what that looks like. Well, and we have a government that is not willing to engage with that reality at all. Well, let's talk a bit about that too because I want to say, you know, I thought Bill Shorten's line that um, Scott Morrison stays up at night reading his old policy book and and taking pages out of it and and scribbling, scribbling out the numbers and just making them a bit less, I thought that was a very... Um, I thought that was a very apt description. You know, the man simply wants to be seen to be doing something without actually ever doing anything and certainly not having any ideas of his own. Because oh, but he makes curry, Ben, because- and he tries on clothes and, like, this ridiculous pantomime we've been watching all week yeah. of him visiting Melbourne. It's like, that's amazing, Scott. Have you remembered that the people of Victoria exist? Well, he- How extremely illiberal of you. Well, he said today, and this is this goes to your point about him not wanting to do anything about climate change. It goes beyond climate change too, doesn't it? Because, you know, today's line is that climate change will ultimately be solved by can-do capitalism. So Morrison has said climate change will ultimately be solved by can-do capitalism, not governments seeking to control people's lives. Now, if ever there was a rallying cry to join your union, It was the. it's the fact that the Prime Minister of Australia is putting the entire future of our climate and our economy into the hands of can-do capitalism. Anyone who has ever seen the way can-do capitalism operates knows that 
you need to be in your union in this kind of environment. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow uh, to join your union now because it is it is a terrifying thought that the that the Prime Minister of Australia is going to put the hands of our future our future in the hands of can-do capitalists who by the way have destroyed 90,000 jobs for women since March of this year 90,000 jobs the environment and the environment so the the people who we should put in we should just leave it to market forces the same way that we left it to market forces and they destroyed the environment in the first place that's brilliant. That's amazing. That's like one of those superstitious beliefs that if you, you know, if you fall on a rock and it cuts you open, you should kiss the rock and then your wound will heal. That's literally the magical thinking land that Scott Morrison is in. Can-do capitalists. Like I don't know what they're drinking in the chairman's lounge at, at you know, on their Qantas flights now that we're allow- allowed to fly around again. If Scott Morrison is convinced that Australian, Australian capitalists are can-do, really? Because I just thought they sucked off the government teat. If they were so can-do, why did we have to give them the billions of JobKeeper they didn't need? Why does Australian capitalism exist in a constant state of extended fording arbitrage facilitated by the, by the Australian Liberal government. Like, I've never heard such nonsense in my life. When was the last time Australian capitalism innovated anything? Well, like, and I'm not talking about your small businesses who build brands and invest in products and make things happen. We know quite a few of those. I'm talking about the absolutely unaccountable, deluded, drunk by lunchtime, like can't do netwits who have preserved their billions, not because they have any talent in capitalism, but because the Australian government just gives them money. Indeed. Well, I mean, this also goes to what, you know, we've talked about before on this show, and that is that if there's money to be made in it, then capitalists will find a way. And it probably won't be Australian capitalists. I think you're pretty right there, Van. I think we've seen that realistically there's a lot of uh, propping up of not very good capitalists going on. You know, Morrison's announced... $500 $500 million for uh, carbon capture and storage, which even Twiggy Forrest, right? Twiggy Forrest, who is himself a mining baron, has said it is unproven technology that doesn't work. And uh, also screws up the environment. Like the solution to screwing up the environment is not actually to screw up the environment. It's amazing. It's like the solution to a head wound is not another head wound. <laughs> it's just bizarre because it the 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 capitalists will solve the elements of climate change that are profitable for them to do so right and there's lots of there's lots of capitalist groups out there talking about that climate change is a big problem it's a big issue but you know policy determines how the framework in which capitalists make decisions that's how governments work. Governments set a policy framework at the very least. Even the lightest touch government is going to set some kind of policy framework. But this approach from Morrison is really leaving things hanging in the wind. And like, capitalists- I just love the idea that we're going to rely on Gina Reinhardt 
to solve climate change Well, because oh, she so can do. Somebody who has literally made all their wealth on the complete desecration of the environment. Maybe Clive Palmer. There we go. Clive, Clive Palmer. Palmer. Clive Palmer will solve. solve climate change. He'll solve climate change. He's a can-do capitalist. Through coal mining. He's a can-do can kind of guy. How many times like has when he announced it comes the to, Titanic 2 again? Seven, eight? Yeah, how many times has he screwed his workers for their entitlements? Have they been paid yet? Has he actually paid I, any money to the state of Western Australia? that he has racked up in adverse court settlements. No, he hasn't. Like Clive Palmer, who single-handedly, try- oh, no, sorry, he got help from Scott Morrison's government trying yeah. to fight the border restrictions that have kept coronavirus largely out of Western Australia. Morrison's, Clive Palmer fought that. Morrison's government is is happy to uh, help the can-do capitalist when it comes to when it comes to breaking down the WA border, not so not so happy to help the rest of us, and that's the real danger, right? The real danger is that actually that the problem is solved only for the purpose of profit. And I'm going to point here to the Australian Climate Roundtable van because this is a group um, that I know pretty well from my various incarnations of life, but it's made up of the Australian Industry Group. Farmers Federation, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the World Wildlife Fund, the Investor Group on Climate Change, and the Business Council of Australia, as well as the Aluminium uh, Association of Australia. And they they want government policy. They they want any certainty for investment for the future. They want jobs and environmental protection. And they have said, and this is from their statement directly, I'm going to quote it, public authorities with a broad mandate and funds to manage transition impacts and facilitate diversification should be established in advance of expected major regional transitions. Now, if you're going to leave it to can-do capitalists, that ain't going to happen. That's not how can do. There is no can-do capitalist board sitting around going, hmm, how are we going to manage the impact on this local community? No, they're going, hmm, how do we maximise the profit? And, oh, wait, someone was impacted? Oh, well, doesn't matter. We maximise the profit. It, it's a, Yeah, that becomes the government and the taxpayers' problem. Yeah. So they screw up a community. They abandon a workforce. They, I mean, they see no responsibility. We don't, we don't, factor in we don't demand payment for externalities in this country that's why we got rid of carbon pricing so carbon pricing was all about putting an actual price on the externalities of doing business if you're going to create environmental waste you will have to pay for it it was an extraordinary mechanism that as you and i and everybody who you know has a basic conception of truth and maths worked out was unbelievably effective in getting corporations to carb their emissions because there was a price and they had to factor that in. But, you know, this is the thing. You have corporations who do what they want to do, it can do capitalists, do whatever they like because coalition governments left them because, and I'm sure it's only a massive coincidence that they're massive donors to them and keep that whole show running politically, you know, the, the best pets you can possibly afford. And then they, you know, screw up, like the way that they have screwed up coal-fired power stations and abandoned communities or forestry projects and abandoned, like just abandoning the sawmills. They don't transition those people. They don't retrain them. They don't provide new industrial opportunities. It's not what happens. And who bears the cost for that? I mean, the individuals who are left behind, totally smashed, and governments and taxpayers. And it really is the taxpayers who bear the cost. Like I said, 
you know, it's not as though Morrison isn't throwing money at various projects. Half a billion dollars on carbon capture, an unproven failure. Again, an unproven failure. Um, oh, no, it's it, it's very much looking as if the failure is proven. proven. Yeah, it's unproven right. technology. It, yeah, unproven it, technology. The time to get into carbon capture and invest in it was decades ago. If we wanted to make this technology work, that was the window. But we had Liberal governments and they weren't that into it. And and the thing is now too, you, you get lots of people doing lots of work going, you know, we can actually create jobs, we can create profit, we can create export revenue from renewable hydrogen, ammonia, green metal production, critical minerals, battery manufacturing. We've talked about that a lot on the show in the past. Education, engineering, you know, and again, you've got these these coalitions of organisations that want these opportunities for now and for the future. Again, the ACTU, the World Wildlife Fund, uh, Australian Conservation Foundation, the Business Council of Australia, they've outlined a plan, five steps to create 395,000 new jobs and $89 billion in export revenue. And, yeah, there is, there is $10, $15, $20 billion in co-investment from the government. But the point is the Morrison government, for all of its talk about can-do capitalism, is pumping money into the fossil fuel industry. It's pumping money into... Oh, it's a gas-led recovery, Ben. Yeah. It's a gas-led recovery. It's doing that already. And what what even other capitalists are saying now, even the twiggy forests of the world are saying now is, hey, look, you know, by all means, subsidise stuff, but let's subsidise stuff that has a future. Let's, let's not subsidise the stuff that people are going to stop buying soon, that, that's burning down our planet, that's making it impossible for us to live. You know, like let's let's actually support communities and, you know, let's make sure there's money for workers and regions to get through a transition. Uh, like it's a really bizarre, almost religious fervour that Morrison has about not properly supporting the communities of Australia that are going to be impacted by this. Both no, because he can't see them. I mean, this is this is what's so concerning, and this is what the the lying, like the lying to the uh, Macron, the lying about the electric vehicles. This is what it reveals: is that Scott Morrison exists in a choose-your-own-adventure reality that he just decides what reality looks like and he goes with that. If he if if it's more convenient to him to pretend that he never said all those ridiculous things about electric vehicles, he'll just invest in that. You know, or you know, negotiate this secret alliance with the UK and the US and totally screw over the French and he'll just ignore the implications of that for Australia. This is we are in a country being governed by a fantasist. And his capacity as an, as an individual to just decide what reality is is unbelievably dangerous from a leadership position. And I think back to the 2019 election when he decided that his election was a miracle and a gift from God, a God, and the words have never been more relevant, of his own understanding. Because let me tell you, as a person who sits down with that, with that wonderful book, you know, m- most days in order to get some guidance about how to be a good and better person, 
I don't know which book he's read because it looks nothing like the one that I have and whatever whatever god he worships is frankly something that terrifies me at night time because it's he just invents things to suit himself. So if anybody's under the impression that he's given one moment of thought to the impacts of on communities or any kind of vision about improving lives. I mean this was there was always that cartoon remember with somebody you know somebody puts their hand up at a conference and says, yeah, but, you know, what if we raise education rates and clean all the water and clean all the air and create better communities and more equality and create more opportunities for people? Like what if we do all of that and it turns out climate change isn't real? And it's like, well, wouldn't we do, like, why don't we just do that anyway? Like, Wouldn't that any good things seems to pretty do? Reasonable. It seems pretty reasonable to me. Like in every, whatever ideology you have, wouldn't you want, I mean, unless you were like a weird fascist and we know a lot of that is about the aesthetics of just a horrible evil. Like, why wouldn't you want your community to be better? Yeah. Scott Morrison doesn't think about that. He, like, name one thing that he has done since the infernal day he became Prime Minister, stabbing his friend Malcolm Turnbull in the back, and hasn't it been wonderful to watch Malcolm Turnbull go, <laughs> he lied to me, he lied to my face, he's a friend to absolutely no one over the past week. I am loving it. Um, it is absolutely it's extraordinarily dangerous how little interest he has in knowing the lives of the people he governs. The impacts of that on us are profoundly dangerous. And I want to raise this. One of the things that came out this week, because, you know, the Liberals were not, Liberals and Nationals, the LNP, you know, the diffusion brands of conservative awfulness that run this country went off to Glasgow and you had Angus Taylor going, oh, yeah, well, we've just got our emissions down because we're awesome because we're just like better than everyone basically. Fantastic, well done, great move, Angus. And it's come out, there was a report about it in The Guardian, that the figures that the Australian government is using to say, oh, we've got emissions down, have uh, appear to have massively underestimated just how much land clearing is going on. So land clearing, cutting down trees, stops the capacity of your environment to process carbon. Clearing mangrove swamps. Mangroves are one of the most, if if you want to talk about carbon capture and storage, reinstall mangrove swamps because that's what mangroves do. Like they're an extraordinarily efficient mechanism for the storage of carbon, like through their root system and water and just the whole way mangroves work. If anybody's a scientist and wants to peg something on one of our pages that explains this process, I, for one, will be grateful. I have had it explained to me in the past. But, like, if we are land clearing at the rate that other people are saying that we are because there's been all this loose liberal national LNP diffusion brand, you know, loosening of legislation Mm, mm. to let people have the choice of totally destroying the environment if they happen to own some land. Well, you don't don't want to control people's lives, Van. We don't want to control people's lives. I mean, we do in the fact that we want to control a situation where we make their homes more prone to fire or flood or storm damage. I mean, that's... I mean, that's what they're doing. I see that as a form of control in my life. If you are making policy decisions that threaten, like, my home and my safety and the safety of my family, I think you're controlling my life in a pretty profound way. I don't think my consumer choices really come into it if what you are doing is making my environment more unstable and giving me no capacity to affect that. Frankly, that's why we we deal with structural problems yeah. with structural solutions, i.e. governments doing something. But this is this is genuinely frightening stuff around land clearing, the fact that the 
Liberals, Nationals, LNP coalition don't care, like don't care that the figures seem to not entirely be legit, that they could be underestimated, that the reporting that if they've of course sacked heaps of staff, the kind of people who report on this stuff, they are, they have been shafted. Yeah, and then they talk about a technology led recovery, which is you know the other miracle that Australia is just going to summon. This is the same government that has absolutely massacred universities, that has torn money out of the CSIRO, that has, you know, well, let's, massively let's, shredded budgets I wanna, around. Ben, I want to talk about that technology piece because, <sighs> it, you know, we, we, we've talked about all those those issues in the past on this show as well, but there's been a report come out today that really strikes at the heart of what you've just said, and this is the Climate Change Performance Index. And this has come out of COP26, and it ranks countries' overall progress towards the Paris goals, and it ranks them on a series of policy initiatives and policy positions and, and areas of policy that that align to the Paris goals, right? And it will not surprise you to learn that we have uh, placed 58th out of 64 countries overall in terms of progress towards the Paris climate goals and last out of 64 on climate policy and we're the only country to get a zero on climate policy and the report for a country that is supposed to be having a technology-led climate-proofed future, the report literally says the words that we are failing to promote new technologies, failing to promote new technologies. Like it's all such a pack of lies woven together for the political advantage of Scott Morrison. And these guys will do literally anything to get reelected. This is the thing. And they have no compunction about lying because, I mean, it's very lucrative for their interests. I mean, it is an established fact that the Taylor family, for example, has done very well out of Liberal, National, LNP coalition governments. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it is whatever is the most convenient lie of the day is the lie that they will tell. They will obfuscate, they will rot, they will pork barrel. The corruption is sickening. It is genuinely sickening. And I think your average Australian, like your average Australian, like wants government to solve the problem. This is what I find really interesting about how Morrison has ratcheted up this, oh, Australians want a choice. Really? Because I don't, I have things going on in my, my own life. Like, you know what, like yeah. the care of my mother is very difficult. I have a bag yeah. of peas on my knee. Like my day, every every plan I had for my day actually has been thrown out by the knee peas but situation. The, 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 point can I just say? the point that you're making, Van, is that he he really before he went to COP, he was trying to put forward that 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 pamphlet was the plan, right? And people went, "Oh yeah, this is him politically going." You don't have to worry about climate. We're going to, we've got a plan. We're going to solve it. Neutralize, neutralize, neutralize. Well, it hasn't worked, right? Because people, the average Australian has actually gone, hang on a minute. There, there's that's a pamphlet, mate. Like, you know, I get Chris that. Bowen called it a scamphlet. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a bit of I love no, I love it. I'm in. It's true. It's a scamphlet. But you know, you get handed one of those every time you go to a train station by some <laughs> lunatic, and it's like, mate. <laughs> You gotta, you, you know what I mean. You can't, you can't pretend like a four-page pamphlet, which is, you know, the the solution, the new solution to an emerging problem using existing policy. Based on existing policy, yeah. <laughs> like it just becomes ridiculous, and people, 
have genuinely gone, yeah, no, we, we actually want you to solve the problem. We, we don't want you to just tell us you've solved the problem and not solve it. Um, and this is why the trip to Melbourne, and I said this yesterday on Twitter, you know, we basically, his, his daily rate of pay is $1,500 a day. That's how much the Prime Minister of Australia costs the people of Australia. Now, usually... You know, there are good days and bad days in terms of value for money on that. I'd say yesterday was a pretty bad day in terms of value for money because we paid for him to steal someone's chip, to hand someone a bowl of gnocchi, to have a haircut and to go car shopping. You know, that's not solving the climate change crisis, Mr Morrison. And this is and this is my point. Like our lives are complicated, especially as everybody recovers from COVID. You have businesses who have not had custom consistent customers for two years who are trying to get themselves reestablished. You have people who have been in and out of work or redeployed in other parts of the economy. I think of every friend of mine who's a working actor and just how difficult their lives have been over the past two years. Like everybody's got a lot of stuff on to just to recover, to restore their family connections, to rebuild their social lives, to rebuild their economic lives. Like I do not want to be empowered as a consumer to make choices about the environmental protection. I want a government to grow up, address the problem, have an actual plan and make policy decisions on behalf of the community. That's what you elect a government to do. I elect a government so somebody is in charge of solving problems, not to subcontract the problems or out they're literally outsourcing the problems to McKinsey. McKinsey. Then can you just rep- remind everybody what McKinsey is? McKinsey, just in case people aren't quite up on the McKinsey thing. McKinsey is a is a global consulting firm. It's it's one of the largest and most powerful consulting firms in the world. And it has been um, consistently engaged by the coalition government uh, and increasingly so to to do things like create the pamphlet, uh, to write policy, to do the modelling. Treasury was not involved in the economic modelling for the pamphlet. McKinsey apparently did it. Like there's a there's a lot of outsourcing to very expensive, very well-paid uh, global uh, consulting firms. And, and But, Van, I mean, this is, this is, I think, where Morrison could come unstuck, right, because we have had an unprecedented two years and, and people people want government to solve the problems now, right, in, in way in, in much more so than ever before, I think. And Morrison yesterday and to some degree today embarked on the same campaigning shtick that he used during the 2019 election campaign, which was to not actually have any policy, not do any governing, just run around and say, I'm just like you. Look how much like you I am. Vote for me because I'm like you, you know, with all of the kind of having a haircut and all the nonsense stuff that he was doing. And, look, that worked in 2019. You know, 2019 was a different time. (laughs) People were a bit put off by, you know, Bill Shorten had a big agenda and that seemed a bit scary to people. And here's this other guy who, frankly, looks like he's afraid of a tennis ball. I'm I'm pretty sure we're going to be okay if he's in charge because he's not going to hurt us. Whereas now we've had two years of a pandemic, we're trying to get back on our feet, we're we're all piecing our lives back together and for for the leader of the nation to be the guy who's spending his working day getting a haircut and, you know, talking to people in cafes and hanging out, you know, back in the kitchen and pinching kids' chips and, you know, going car shopping, 
people, honestly, some 3,000 people have liked my tweet about that because I think it it goes to the core of the issue. That's not what people want in a leader. That's not what leadership is. Leadership is not pretending to be like everybody else and then sending us a bill for 1500 bucks for it. Leadership is this is a serious issue. Here is a serious solution. This is ha- how we get there. And this is what it's going to cost. That's what leadership is. And he's not prepared oh, to do it. Let's talk about my favorite prime minister, John Curtin, and the reason why he won. 58% of the primary vote at the height of the Second World War because he was married to the job. John Curtin wasn't out posing for photos like trying to look like a regular person. He was literally building the Australian welfare state at the same time. He was leading the defence of this country against, like, international fascist imperialism. Like, that's the leader who you get behind. And, I mean, I... I think climate change is frustrating because it's a slow motion catastrophe. Yeah. I want everyone to just take a moment to think of like to think of something as serious as climate change is a war. Like it is it is because it's an existential threat. But rather than the planes flying over the bombs that can level our cities, it's the slow it's the slow burn of the fires and the floods and the tsunamis and you know the horrible storms. I mean, here at my mother's house where I'm in the lounge room because I'm on the couch with my elevated leg. And we had to call the SES because in one of these freak storms that that are happening more and more, mm-hmm. the the window at the front started to collapse and water was pouring into the house. I really have had the best few months of my life, everyone, absolutely the best few months. Like these are existential threats. If my mother had been here by herself, she might not have been able to deal with it. The, the whole window could have fallen in, the house could have flooded. God only knows what might have happened. And it's just like, so this is, this is the, you know, this is a slow motion catastrophe. Would you trust Scott Morrison to lead this country through a war? Do you think that, you know, getting paid 1500 bucks to steal a chip and have lunch and get a haircut and go shopping, is that what you want to see of a leader in a, in a war situation? No. You know, he doesn't hold a hose, mate. I mean, this is, of course, the same guy who went to Hawaii when the country was burning down. And frankly, I don't think we can repeat that enough. But, but ultimately, Van, all these problems will be solved by can-do By can-do capitalism. Oh, yeah. And that's, Absolutely. And like, that, you know, like, Are we talking about corporations like Rio Tinto who blew up the Yukon Gorge? Yeah. Because like, that was pretty can-do. Yeah. Like 46,000-year-old, like, sacred site full of artefacts – being studied by scientists for, like, you know that they identified genetic material. I only found this out recently. They found a plait of human hair that was of interweaving strands, like, and this was 5,000 years old. This was one of the artefacts they had found in that site. And they were able to retrieve DNA from this plait of human hair and map like these communities that still exist, that still exist today based in that area. Like absolutely phenomenal archaeological find. And in any other country it would have been like, you know, drop everything, we've made these incredible discoveries, we're doing this kind of mapping. There would have at least least been a a rope or a velvet, uh, you know, a bit of velvet cord or something. A you bit know. of velvet cord around it, maybe. No, no, no. Rio Tinto just blew it up. Yeah. Right. These are the people. These are the corporations who are going to save us from climate change. Are they? Well, this I is. I really want. This I just, is I find plan. it literally hilarious. This it is, is fantastic. Plan. 
like Lulu banana stuff. Well, and and it and it shows, right? Like his style of leadership, if you can call it that, is to <laughs> is to let the capitalists do it. It's to outsource it to McKinsey. It's to give Santos pride pride of place. Santos, the gas and oil company, pride of place at a climate conference, you know, oh, and and to God. go and spend his time swanning about, having lunch, getting a haircut, having some photos taken. You know, maybe maybe buying a new car with Angus Taylor. Like it sounds like it was a, a really lovely day out, and I, you know, I wish those two all the best. They seem like a really lovely couple. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think I think we should start to talk about some good news. Um, yeah, can I can I talk about can I have a good news environment story because I need one after on. that. Yeah, yeah. After all that negative news about the environment. <laughs> There is okay, there's so a lot camera- of good news in the environment, right? So let's 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 have some. Look, there look there is actually, and if anybody ever needs to hear a good news environment story, hit me up because as you know, I collect them for my own for my own mental health. Frankly, I need to know that there are people on this planet who think it's worth saving. Um, and this week, my happy my happy place was achieved in the nation of Cameroon. Uh, whose amazing uh, soccer victories I'm sure Ben can also um, itemise a name for you at a a later date, but that's not what this story is about. This story is about um, 60,000 refugees from Nigeria who fled across the border into Cameroon um, into an area known as Minawal. Uh, in order to escape Boko Haram, who are not very nice people, mm. um, who were, you know, abducting girls and murdering heaps of people in Nigeria, which is, you know, totally yeah. behaviour no. worth worth escaping. Yes. Anyway, what happened was Minowau had quite a small population, 60,000 refugees turn up. You know, this is, this is not a place that has consistent electricity supply or anything else. And traditional cooking is like burning wood-based and the place environmentally couldn't handle the influx uh, influx of refugees. Cameroon is a poor country, obviously, legacy of colonialism, and this the environment essentially started to collapse and it was massively deforested. And there are photographs you can look at, Minowau, of these, you know, refugee tenements essentially um, and it's just all brown. There's like one or two trees standing for like a, a, a radius of miles. Like it's like 120 acres or, so, mm, or mm. sorry, it's infinitely more than that 120 is a bit small. Um, it's like a huge area that was just absolutely flattened. Well, what happened was the UNHCR um, went actually – there's an intervention we can make. And they worked with another organisation called the Lutheran World Federation, which is obviously a Lutheran church-based... Organisation. Yeah, social development organisation. And they were like, let's work with this community. Like these people have to Mm. live somewhere Mm. um, to look at a sustainability project so we can revegetate and reforest this area so it doesn't become like a terrible environmental sinkhole. We can demonstrate two things at the same time, which is that we can put the forest back, we can create a safe place for refugees from a terrible situation to live, and we can create jobs for people. And this program that they've been running since it's only since 2017, so it's only four years. Yeah. They have totally reforested in five in in four years. They have reforested this area, and they they use like highly sophisticated but low tech uh, precision farming technology using sort of available materials, things like repurposed water bottles yeah. to feed saplings. Um, they've put in this 
unbelievable number of trees and the forest is growing back and the trees have grown back so you can see the before and after photographs of it. It's incredible. But part of the reforestation is that they've looked at cash crops. So they're growing things like um, cashew plants and various kinds of fruit and that's what the Lutheran World Federation do. They're like sort of an agricultural development organisation. And they've created um, a nursery on the outskirts of the refugee camp with 294 acres of um, of crop trees that have been planted. They've got like a five-year planting and harvest cycle um, and it's absolutely amazing what they're doing. They're also using like uh, veg- vegetable waste to, pro- to be processed into sort of um, – uh, low impact charcoal briquettes, which wow. are like the basis of cooking, yeah. and so and creating like hundreds of jobs, empowering women in the community, community, and giving women the sort of the various jobs like targeted programs in this economy that they're building around a sustainable forest. And it's like that community will survive, the trees will survive. It has been reforested. Like they are looking at minimal minimal carbon. Um, expenditure like this is what we should be doing everywhere that's happening in a refugee camp in cameroon right with sixty thousand nigerian displaced nigerians if they can do if 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 you've got if you've got that few resources available to you and you can do it surely a country as wealthy and prosperous as ours we can figure it out right like we've got we've got the resources at our disposal and maybe we've got to take some from the can-do capitalists to uh, to make it happen. And- yeah, and, you know, it was done really cheaply. Like it was done yeah. for like less than $3 million from the Dutch Lottery Fund. Yeah, there you go. Um, like- ben, ben, I want to talk as well because there's some other good news I think people need to be across. Um, the first one, I want to give a shout-out to the – Victorian Trades Hall Council's Sticking Together Children's Picture Book. Um, it's so cute. It is so cute. It is so cute. Um, and congratulations to everyone at Trades Hall involved in that. Uh, Rhys Muldoon has voiced the um, the audio book for that. Um, great guy. It's a lovely reading, former play, play school presenter, um, and it's a very cute story about, you know, how animals stick together and, you know, get better outcomes as a result. So, you know, if you, if you won't join your union because I say go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, uh, that's WOW for week on Wednesday, you know, read Sticking Together, read it to your kids and then you'll definitely want to join your union. Um, so that book is out now. You can get it on the Trades Hall website and I think it readings in Carlton and Melbourne if you're around there. But, Van, your book, QAnon and On, is coming out next week. It is. It is. Uh, the official date of release is the 17th. So you will be able to buy it as an ebook from your ebook retailer, presumably. Um, certainly, there are corporations that will be selling that book that I may not necessarily promote on this particular podcast, sure. which it will be available and you can make your own ethical consumer decision about how to do that. I, of course, when people go, Ben, um, where's the best place to buy the book from? I'm like, well, number one, your local independent bookseller, that's where you should go. Um, if that's inaccessible to you, support an Australian chain, support like a locally based Australian chain. Um, and if that's inaccessible to you, there are it, it will be stocked in some big box stores, I believe, and certainly is available online. And I would love you all to read it because I, I worked very hard uh, on that book and went to a pretty dark and crazy place. Um, researching how 
bad faith actors have weaponized the have weaponized the internet using uh, an existing population of conspiracy theorists and how these people are you know unwitting and misguided puppets in a very dangerous geopolitical game is essentially what the book is about and you're reading it you tell me what do you think oh it's amazing i mean it is really it is a really amazing thing to read because it is um it is disturbing but intriguing at the same time um you know for those of us who think of ourselves as knowing a fair bit about politics or a fair bit about the internet um i think this book puts us in a very not in a very nice way, firmly in our place. Um, for those who you know don't feign knowledge of those things, this will be incredibly eye-opening. Uh, it is, and it and the way you've written it is captivating. It's hard to put down. You know, it, it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating story that is true and that's the bit that i think disturbs people um about it is because you read it and you go oh you couldn't make it up well you didn't have to make it up (laughs) there's a hundred pages of footnotes at the end (laughs) that um that that you know make it very clear just how real this this situation is it's a really it's a gripping gripping read and um you know don't be put off by how thick it might look because, as I say, there's 100 pages of footnotes. So for those of you who want to dive down into the rabbit hole that we've only just managed to pull Van out of, you, you can you can do that if you want. But I just recommend the book to, to people because it is, you know, it, it is eye-opening, even for, even for people like myself who would think they know quite a bit about politics and the way politics works and the way the internet influences politics. You know, every page, I'm going. I just had no idea. I just had no idea. Oh, I had, I had no idea until I really got into the weeds of the book. So, I mean, so just so everybody knows, like I was, I had, I see a lot of crazy things on the internet because I live on the internet. Most of you who are listening to this podcast have probably come to this podcast via the internet, and that's where we promote yeah. it, where it exists. And you, and you know, as a as a uh, like feminist commentator, you can imagine I have seen like horrific things and been subject to the most hor- horrendous attacks on on the internet from all kinds of people. I'm always constantly amazed by the variety of of movements and groups who find the time to obsess about my internet behaviour. And um, I had sort of noticed this this sort of new presence, like. A couple of years ago, I started seeing traces of this QAnon belief system because, you know, people attack me on the internet before I block them, I have a look at, you know, sort of where they're coming from. And I create records of everybody who harasses me on the internet because I have to because, as Ben unfortunately knows, there have been intrusions into my life with stalking and, you know, weird things delivered to my letterbox. And, yeah. you know, there was an assault a few years ago and I have to be really thinking about my security. Unfortunately, this is – and I need to know where the threats are coming from. Sometimes they feel like they're coming from everywhere, as Ben well knows, but we are where we are. And so I keep files on mm. sort of people and mm. movements and sort of groups to work out where the risk is. And I was like, what on earth is this – secretive cabal stuff and the kind of things that I was being accused of supporting that were complete nonsense. And I I had, because I run quite a big Facebook page as well, I've got a lovely community um, around my Facebook page, I had a number of people write to me going, 
my brother, my uncle, my sister, my sister's husband have gotten into this conspiracy belief and I don't know what to do. Can you help me? I don't know how to get them out of it. It's becoming a real point of division. And I was getting more and more and more of these stories and wrote a piece for The Guardian about what to do if somebody you love gets involved in an internet conspiracy cult. Because obviously when coronavirus lockdown started and everybody was trapped at home with a computer, it really spiked up. Mm, mm. And after that, that article came out and went viral. Like there was obviously this huge audience of people who wanted to know what to do. I got approached by the publisher saying, look, would you write a book about this? And I originally thought that I would be writing a book about conspiracy theorists and that the book would just be about these people who think that lizard people live amongst us mm. or, you know, the Illuminati um, are broadcasting mind control through the CIA, you know, space lasers or whatever. Mm. And I knew that there was a lot of traditional racism that was really baked into that kind of conspiracy belief in the West and that it would be that kind of exploration. But, of course, the more I dug and the more I got into it, I realised that we were dealing with a very sophisticated political campaign where bad faith actors all over the world were like, hey, we can totally weaponise these people. Anyone who is prepared to believe that lizard people live amongst us or that Hillary Clinton eats children in the basement of a Washington pizza restaurant, like people who are willing to believe those things are people we can convince to do basically anything. And that's why you've seen so many QAnon t-shirts and flags and other bits of things and things like the Melbourne anti-lockdown protests and the January 6th insurrection in the United States. And of course, there's been acts of what they call stochastic terrorism, individuals who become so convinced by this propaganda they're consuming that they take action themselves as lone wolves to take out political targets, like people driving trains off tracks and shooting their families and like this terrible stuff that's been going on. And the the fact that there was a political link is what the book became about. And for me, like that process of discovery as Ben well knows, because I was like sleepless and having nightmares, was mm. genuinely terrifying. Well, it's it's an incredible it's an incredible read and really, you know, cannot recommend it more highly. Um, I just want to finish. We'll go into this story a bit more next week uh, because uh, it's actually on the 19th uh, that there is a International Toilet Day. And I, and I raise this, uh, I flag this because... This is not a verdict on my book. <laughs> no, no. Mind you, it is, you know, read wherever you will, friends. Read wherever you will. Um because it's actually a workplace safety issue. Uh, and the ETU, the, the Electrical Trades Union of Australia, is currently running a campaign to make sure that men and women and, and everybody who's on a work site have access to clean, sanitary, safe, suitable bathrooms. Because believe it or not, in Australia, in the year 2021, the can-do capitalists are not providing safe, sanitary and suitable bathrooms for everyone, and particularly in blue-collar trades, which is obviously where the electrical trade union uh, is is predominantly in. Um, there are there's very few uh, suitable toilets, so we're going to talk more about that campaign next week. But I will flag there is a megaphone petition about that megaphone.org.au, and if you put in workplace safety includes toilet facilities, you'll find that it's a good campaign. Get behind it. I never thought in the year 2021, Van, we would need to be promoting the idea that everyone 
deserves the right to a safe and sanitary toilet, but that's what can-do capitalism gets you, I guess. Yeah, so so the same corporations who cannot provide toilets for electricians are the ones who are going to solve climate change, everyone. Let's just let's let's just leave it there for let's today. Leave it there. Thank you so much for listening to the week on Wednesday. We really appreciate all the support. We just you know phenomenal levels of support every week that we get from people. Please like, share. If you do get a chance to comment on our uh, Apple uh, podcast channel or on Spotify, that really does help. If you can engage with those channels, that really helps other people get the message as well we really love hearing about everybody who's joined their union or got more involved in their union as a result of listening to the week on wednesday oh, th- that brings us total joy and we also love it when people tell us that they've shared the show with friends of theirs who want to know more about politics and want to consume different views i mean ben and i are very honest about where we come from um and what our values are and it's fantastic to think that we're part of a community of people who want to talk about doing things a bit differently and making this beautiful country that we live in fairer and more equitable and more sustainable and a place that's not going to burn down in a climate fire. Like we're, we're into being part of that conversation. And we always say, you know, if there are things you want explained, like things to do with the economy or financing or politics or why are things the way they are, like we, we don't know what you want to know until you tell us. That's right. And when people get in contact with us, we love that because we're like, okay, here's a gap where I'm more than happy to fill. So jump on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, you can find Van's channels. You can find The Week on Wednesday. Obviously, Podbean hosts our podcast. Uh, and, of course, australianunions.org.au slash wow. And don't forget to also check out On The Job, uh, the official podcast of Australian Unions with our good friends Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. They've just had, love dearly. They've just had their 51st episode and they're going from strength to strength as well. So we really appreciate all of our listeners who've come from there and all of our listeners who check them out as well. I know they really appreciate it too. So I think that's all we've got time for today, Van. Love you, darling. Oh, I love you too. I miss you terribly, especially now I can't walk. Help, help. (laughs) Bye. Bye.